The Dance of Gods, Book One, Spell of Catastrophe, by Mayor Alan Brenner. Chapter Six, The Creeping Sword Stalks Again. The Scargold ransom money was enough to let me live comfortably for a year, but I was still sitting out in front at the office the next morning. I'm not sure I could tell you why. You work and you work until you get to a point where you don't have to work for a while, and when you get to that point, you keep working anyway. Damned if I understand it. I didn't think I had anything of the freelance do-gooder in me. I didn't think I was the kind of guy who'd keep doing what I should get paid for for free. But I'd been surprised before. Of course, as things turned out, the first business through the door made me wish I'd caught the first barge out of town. I had my feet up, just leaning back and, like I said, feeling pretty good about things for a change, when there was a knock on the door. There was something surprising about that, and even my mood of contentment wasn't enough to make me ignore it. It wasn't the fact that it was 6.30 in the morning, when the butchers and farmers had been at work for hours and most everyone else was still dragging themselves out of bed. When you do the jobs I do, you get to expect people barging in on you at all hours. With all the skullduggery going on in the city during the night, an early morning visitor wouldn't have startled me one bit. So it wasn't the visitor that surprised me. What surprised me was hearing the knock on the door and nothing else. I've got my office on the second floor of an old building for a good reason. The stairs creak. I went and loosened them specially myself so they'd creak even louder. I like to know people are coming before they get up here. The neighbors hate the sound, but they hate fights in my office even more. Me, I didn't think anything larger than a cat could make it up the stairs without warning me. And then, there was a knock on the door. That was the strangest thing about it. If anyone was going to take the trouble to get up the staircase without the slightest sound, however they did it, I would have figured the reason was to take me by surprise. So, why would they knock? There was only one thing to do. I rested a hand near the hilt of my sword, tried to remember if I'd made my last good luck payment to Flynn Aroll, the adventurer's god, and said, Come in. When he walked in, I knew all bets were off. Too late, I remembered that my coverage with Flynn Aroll had lapsed a week ago. Typical, I thought. The guy in the door was the man from the Scargill case, the one from the insurance company. The one I'd figured was probably a god. Hello, I said carefully. Have a seat. Thank you, he said. He rested his walking stick next to the door, removed his brown and gray tweed cape and draped it over the back of the chair, flicked his gaze quickly over the seat, apparently decided the brown splotches were defects in the wood and not the remains of a recent spill, and lowered himself deliberately onto the chair, his hands grasping the armrests. His hair was combed over a bald spot, and he was a bit too stocky to bet on in timed sprints, but his mouth was pursed enough to make the whole face look grim. His eyes shifted around in pale sockets, darting at the few significant features of the room, the desk, the window, the bookcase with its smattering of books and my two large creeping plants, the dented Valtubian shield, me, and it occurred to me that perhaps, just maybe, he was worried about something. I tried to look patient and to keep my mind as far away from the ransom money as I could, just in case stray thoughts were what he was after. 
His eyes settled on me again, then slid away. I find myself in an uncharacteristic situation, he said. I need your help. Someone is trying to kill me. I tried to stop it, but I think my jaw dropped anyway. You're a god. How could someone be trying to kill you? Oh, he said in a flat voice, a god. You notice that bit with the wife and the balls of fire? Yeah, it's my job to notice little things like that. He was examining the shield again. He really didn't want to look in my direction, did he? Of course, the shield was worth the once-over. Given the ragged flower-petal hole gashed through the middle of it, you'd wonder how the person holding it had survived. Actually, the person hadn't. Fortunately, that person hadn't been me. You are quite observant indeed, said the guy in the chair. Powers of observation are valuable. These powers are one reason I have chosen you to assist me. I wished I had gone blind while I'd had the chance. That way I would have stopped noticing unhealthy things, like the fact that he was a god. The damage would have been a lot better in the long run than what he had to have in mind for me. As long as I was at it, I wished I'd lost my tongue, too, to keep me from making any more dumb remarks, such as actually telling him what I'd seen. But if I couldn't see new problems to get myself into, and couldn't open my mouth to make them worse, I wouldn't be myself then, would I? You really are a god, I said. You're not going to try to deny it. What would be the goal? Would you treat me differently if you thought me a mere sorcerer? Yeah, I would. I've got a lot of experience dealing with people. I feel comfortable around them, even when they're trying to kill me. All the more reason, then, he said. There is no reason for you to feel comfortable around me. We are not peers. You will work for me in this case, but I am not your client. I am your master. Fear or no fear, imminent painful death or not, those were fighting words, whoever he was. You got some kind of nerve, I said. I work for who I choose, when I choose. I'll take your little problem if I want to, after you've told me about it. But you can't just come in here and take over my life. I may let you hire me, but you're not going to own me. I gave up the whole vassal number years ago. I am not bargaining with you. This is a matter of some urgency. I have been cut off from my primary power source. Magic. That's another thing. I hate magic. I hate cases that hinge on magic. I hate the idea of magic. In fact, I think I'm starting to hate you, too. I don't think your case is going to interest me at all. Now, why don't you pick up your cape and your cane and go out the same way you came in? He seemed to be enjoying the situation too much, like a boy with a small insect and a growing collection of tiny legs, and that should have warned me. I thought perhaps you might take that attitude, he said. That's why I took certain precautions. What precautions? Your metabolism. I've linked it to mine. What are you talking about? I'll show you. Hit me. Go ahead. I had been thinking about doing just that for some time. I was sure it was a bad idea, but that had never stopped me before. My left took him under the jaw. I felt it in the usual place, in my fist, but that wasn't all. A sharp, pounding pain flashed out of my own chin and up into my head. He got to his feet while I was still resting on the floor, looking out of crossed eyes. Metabolism, he said. Linked. Anything that affects me affects you. If I run out of power, you will most probably die. I wondered how I was getting myself into this. Maybe he'd been doing something to me that screwed up my better judgment. My head was certainly screwed up, and it was only seven o'clock in the morning. On the other hand, it looked like my left had as much punch as I'd always given it credit for. I reached for a random thought. 
This power stuff, I said. I thought you guys had so much power you could do anything. Why do you need me? Why do you have so many questions? Just follow my orders. That is the only valid choice for you. I squinted up at the two of him and took a deep breath. Like I said, I hate magic. I've always hated magic. The situation isn't likely to make me reconsider, but your little show-and-tell makes it look like I'm stuck with it. I may be tough, but I'm not an idiot. I can tell when I've been outplayed. I think surviving the experience is good for a first goal, and I'll go back to hating it later. If I'm going to get out of this, I'm going to have to do what you want and do it right. I'm a professional. I assume that's why you're here. If I'm going to do a professional job, I'm going to have to know what's going on. He sat down in my chair behind my desk, reached into my drawer, and pulled out my flask. It has been a long time since anyone like you treated me like this, he said, pouring a long shot down his throat. He smacked his lips, and maybe I felt some of it, too, deep down in my chest. One side of me wants to dismantle you, organ by organ, and joint by joint, and have oxen run wild over the remains. Something crackled between his hands, and it wasn't the flask. I set my jaw as well as I could from my recumbent position on the floor, and tried to look as tough as I'd been talking. Not an easy concept when you do happen to be lying on the floor. But I will not do that, he said after a minute. I will not do that because you happen to be right. If I could do your job, I would be doing it myself, but I cannot, so I need your expertise. I will caution you, though. I do know my job. Do not go too far, or I will show you some of its finer points. He stared at me. The feeling of something large and terrible loomed at my back, waiting to tear me apart. And that would just be the appetizer. I made myself not swallow and stared back at him. Right, I said. So I've got those questions. He took another swig from the flask. Very well. I hoisted myself gingerly off the floor and into the visitor's chair. Let's start with who's trying to kill you. He looked at me as though he might be reconsidering whether I was the one he needed or not. If I knew that, I would eradicate them. Yeah, right. Then how about what kind of attempts have they been making on your uh, life? There has been no direct attempt to discorporate me, no. Okay, I said. So how do you know somebody's trying to kill you? When I tried to leave the city earlier this morning, I discovered a barrier surrounding it. Okay, so we were finally getting somewhere. Unless he was one of those mad nutjob gods and the whole thing was in his own head. Tell me about this barrier. He paused and looked disparagingly at me. The explanation is highly technical. Try me, I can take it. He was right, the explanation was technical. What he didn't know, and what I didn't want to mention, was that over the years I'd picked up a fair amount of magic theory, purely out of self-defense. Just because I didn't like magic didn't mean I couldn't know something about it. I'd been up against magicians before, and it was always a good idea to have some grasp on their capabilities, and whether they could really carry out the threats they always seemed to enjoy making. So when he started off by saying it was a type of coupling problem and looked at me to see if I had the slightest idea of what he was talking about, I could raise an eyebrow and nod back with some level of confidence. Coupling was always a big subject on the mind of a magician, like caravan drivers crossing the desert and their obsession with the location of the next watering hole. Magic took a lot of power, and most of it came out of the magician's hide, out of their own life energy or aura or whatever they were calling it this year. This drain was usually through a loss of body mass, but not always. 
Part of being a magician was learning not only to produce spells, but how to cope with the aftermath. Well, fine, walking takes energy too. The problem with magic was the quantity involved. Major League conjuring, something like a duel, say, could take off 50 pounds of weight in a matter of minutes and leave you incapacitated for weeks, and that was if you won. You could create a spell ahead of time and store it, but that was only good when you knew in advance what you were going to need. Setting up the spell would still incapacitate you, but at least you were in a position where you could rest up afterward. That was some help, but not really enough. That's why magicians were always looking for ways to store up power in other forms, and new ways to get the power in the first place. That's where coupling came in. Most things in the world were potential power sources. Living things were best, but theoretically you could use rocks, wind, water, just about anything. The amount of energy a thing had available was supposed to be related to the amount of order that had gone into making it and keeping it running. At least that's what the text said. Unfortunately, there was a technical hitch. There was all this potential energy out there, but nobody could really get at it. To get energy out of a rock, say, you had to couple your own energy field to the rock, do something to the rock that would release its energy, and siphon the energy into your own field or directly into your spell. In practice, it turned out the efficiency of transfer was low, real low. Draining your object all the way down to a husk might give you 1% of the energy you could calculate was there. Maybe 1% if you were lucky and really knew what you were doing. There were all kinds of tricks and wrinkles, and different classes of objects gave different types of energy, so magicians tend to specialize in order to at least learn one set of techniques really well. Necromancers, for example, get their energy from the dead. Along the way, they learned how to fiddle with the dead in other ways, too. It wasn't all a question of energy. The bottom line, though, was that there was all this energy sitting around, and nobody could figure out how to make it work for them. That much was common knowledge in magical circles. What I hadn't known, and what I doubted anybody who wasn't a god really comprehended, was that the gods had coupling problems, too. Gods don't like to discuss economics, it takes away from their image. According to this one, though, keeping up a god's basic lifestyle took a lot of power. That's why gods tried to diversify, storing up energy from as many different sources as they could, but they ran into efficiency trade-offs the same as people. For some reason, the rules didn't work quite the same for gods. He said their efficiency curves were different, and they could tap other sources that weren't open to regular mortals, like energy from prayers, but that didn't get around the fact that the rules still laid down the law. There was another related problem. Magicians wanted to store up as much power as they could, of course, but it turned out there the possible power you could store was limited, too. A single person or aura could only absorb a certain amount of energy at any one time. A person, an aura, or a god. Gods could hold more, a lot more, in fact, but they normally chewed through it at a higher rate, too. What they could do, though, was store the excess, ending up with a network of power reservoirs they could couple into and recharge from, even at a distance, like a high-altitude reservoir of water when you needed a drink, or a bank when you needed cash. Also like banks, these energy stores could be robbed. A lot of a god's time went into hiding, guarding, or booby-trapping his reservoirs, and especially trying to keep anyone else from finding out their locations in the first place. So let me see if I've got this straight, I said, interrupting his exposition. You're in Rusingal Vaya, running an errand, away from your power reserves. When you try to leave, you run into this barrier. Not only does it keep you from getting out of the city, 
but if you couple through it, you reveal the location of the reservoir you're coupling into. He eyed me thoughtfully. Yes, he said. Is this barrier thing some standard ploy, then? I have seen barriers used before. This barrier is not typical. It seems optimized for neutralization of surveillance and for quarantine. You mean keeping magic users out of the city and not letting any of them look in? Essentially. So why do you think this barrier person is after you? This is not a very big city. Who else would they be after? This guy might have big power, but he also had an ego to match. Rusingle Vaya wasn't the largest city on the continent, but it still had its share of stories. Who knew what else was going on out there today? He also had a certain weakness in logical arguments. Maybe they don't realize you're here, I said. Maybe they don't know the field has this effect on you. It sounds like this barrier is aimed at mortals, regular magicians, not gods at all. You could be caught up as a side effect. He was silent for a moment. That could explain a certain detail. This barrier appears to be a first-level field. First-level? I'd never heard that term before. Human magicians operate on the first quantum level. A god generally does not. Whatever you say. So maybe it's just some mortal slob out there who's put up this barrier for reasons of his own and accidentally trapped you. That is possible. So maybe you could just blast this field and crush this guy and take off. He glanced at me. I thought I was starting to get better at picking up his moods, and this time I thought he was actually a bit amused. A good try, he said. I have not tested the barrier yet, merely examined it. I wish to know exactly what I face before committing myself. I could potentially do what you were suggesting, but perhaps not. The drain would surely prove considerable. Even if you wait, you still said you were running out of power pretty fast. That is true. That is why you would best plan on working quickly. To hell with public-spirited high-mindedness. I was in a jam, and I came first. If you need to recharge in the meantime, why don't you just sacrifice a few dozen people and chew up their souls? That, unfortunately, is not an option. Huh? I said. I thought all gods... You thought wrongly, he said. A little testily, I thought, this time. Such energy would be tainted, would destabilize my matrix structure. He looked at my desk plant, which wasn't doing too well itself, but seemed to find enough inspiration from it to proceed. I am not a death... Suddenly, I was not only out of my depth, I was overboard, in the middle of the ocean, with a small rock quarry tied to my leg. Uh, I said. Who are you? What are you? His head turned slowly to face me, and his eyes gazed sharply through mine. You may not know what I am. As for who I am, you may call me Gashanatantra. What the heck? I would see how far I'd come. Okay, sure, that's a fine name, unless I need to call you in a hurry. Since you say this mess is so urgent, I'd rather call you something I don't have to figure out how to pronounce every time I say it. How about Gash? Gash? Indeed. He paused again, and I prepared to die. Then, instead, he took another swallow from my flask and said, Very well. Are you prepared to begin now? Yeah, I think so. Where can I get in touch with you? I will be available when appropriate. You said something like that once before. As with the insurance investigation, I wish my role to remain as minimal as possible. You mean I'm bait? 
You want to wave me around and have this barrier maker shoot at me. He smiled. You may view it that way, he said, if you choose. That's fine, I said. I understand the situation, and that's my job. There's just one thing you might want to remember. You might want to remember that it'll be more difficult for me to do what you need me to do if I'm dead. That means it's also in your own interest that I don't get that way. Few mortals are irreplaceable. I have selected you so that you can accomplish this on your own, by yourself. He paused, his eyes momentarily wandering over to look at the other shield, the one from Mangachka hanging over the desk. This one had a different, neater hole punched straight through the middle where a javelin had once gone through it. The javelin was still embedded behind it in the wall. Do you think you can handle it? Every client I'd ever had ended up asking that sooner or later. I hadn't answered honestly yet. I usually needed the business. I'm not dumb enough to say no, but I'm not dumb enough to say yes. You're a big-time player. So is whoever's out there, even if he isn't a god. He's probably going to be a nasty nut to crack. That may need the kind of firepower that you've got, and I don't. That means if I get in trouble that's too deep for me on my own, I'm going to have to count on you to back me up. He didn't say anything. He just eyed me again, and then got up and left. I had the nasty feeling I might find out how expendable I really was. One thing that he carefully hadn't said, though, and that I hadn't wanted him to know I'd thought of, was this metabolic linkage bit. I'd die if he died, he had said, but maybe it would work the other way, too. It was just possible that he'd have to bail me out for the sake of his own skin, or else cut me loose. I wasn't planning to die, but I was planning to get out of this thing without him running the rest of my life. It would be trickier than anything I'd done before, but for some reason I thought I might actually be able to pull it off. Don't ask me why I was so optimistic. There hadn't been much in my mornings so far to justify a sanguine view of the prospects. And, of course, things were about to get worse. Like I said before, I hate magic. It makes me nervous. I'm sure that kind of feeling was an old story. Back thousands of years ago, when technology ruled the world, I'm sure some people hated that, too. When the gods moved in and shut technology down, the big thing that changed was the emphasis. These days, technology had acquired a mystique among the few people who knew it had ever existed, a nostalgia that I shared. Nostalgia was all it would ever be. Every time some new mechanical genius showed up, trying to roll out a new innovation or reintroduce an old one he'd dug out of a ruin, the gods would squash him. They kept an eye out for things like that, and they didn't miss much. More to the point, though, just because I didn't like the idea of magic didn't mean I couldn't know something about it, or know some of the people who knew how it worked. In my business, every friend is a blessing and every contact an asset. When I pulled myself together then, having decided not to actually finish off the flask at that time, I headed off to see a guy. This person certainly wasn't a blessing, but in the past he had been an asset, and in my present jam I hoped I could convince him to be one again. Carl Lake took one look at me after his manservant had ushered me into his comfortable second-floor solarium atop the silversmith's shop on the fashionable street of Fresh Breeze, and said, "'What happened to you?' I seated myself in his down-stuffed armchair in the shade of a tropical young palm. Gash hadn't told me I shouldn't tell anybody else the real situation, 
but I figured I'd better be discreet. I got a client, I said. He pushed aside some scrolls on his desk, the polished surface gleaming with rare hardwoods, and leaned over it to peer more closely at me. You've also picked up a curse. He scrutinized the air around me. I've never seen one quite like this. Beautiful work, beautiful work. Unregistered, hmm, yes. Unregistered, I said. What the hell does that mean? And what's this about a curse? Surely you know of the curse registry, he said, steepling his fingers. Curses are often registered with an agency of the gods, like insurance, hmm? A god is contracted to administer the application of the curse. Supervision by a god, a very valuable function, yes, but quite expensive. He clucked to himself and rubbed his eyebrows. His eyebrows, possibly because of the attention, stuck wildly up and down like ragged bottle brushes. The curse is woven into your aura, like this. His hand made swishing, darting movements around his own body. What are the details? What is its purpose? Without a full study, I cannot tell. He spread his arms, hands open and palms up. Well, I guess I could have told him the story, how this curse was probably how Gash had linked my fate to his, but I didn't. I'd met Carl after he'd gone on a picnic a short way up the river. Three thugs had thrown him off a rock ledge and left him for dead, and had stolen the scrolls he'd taken along to read in the sun. I tracked down the goons and recovered his stuff. Carl would never walk right again, since the ledge had been fairly high up, but he still had his solarium and a good basic stay-at-home fee-for-spell magical consulting business, so he was doing all right. Sometimes he let himself feel some obligation to me. He'd also invested more attention in learning more reliable self-protection magic. Well, I said, so I've got a curse. What else is new? I guess I'll just have to live with it. What's going on in town? Aside from the martial law and the curfew and the troops, yes, anything going on, you say? Aside from them, yeah, any strange new magic around? You, Carl said, I know. You are testing me. You have some particular thing in mind you are really asking me. Yes? Hmm? You think? Something magical, then. Hmm. He rang for tea, and I remembered what time it really was, still barely the hour for a civilized breakfast. Carl was still in his dressing gown, but of course magicians had their own reputation to keep up, conjurations past midnight and all that. The tea was hot, and its taste alive with the tingle of exotic spices, one of the benefits of living in a major commercial port. Good tea, I said. Yes, thank you. You are not interested in simple gossip, but then these are not simple times, hmm? As you know, I am not often political, but perhaps you have come for speculation on political trends? I decided to stop playing games. Maybe then he'd stop, too. Look, Carl, I said, maybe it's political and maybe it's not. I wouldn't be surprised if it was. I've heard that somebody's put a barrier around the city, and I don't mean a line of troops, a barrier for quarantine and neutralization of surveillance. Hmm, he said. That is news. A barrier of sorcery. That is news indeed. How do you know of this thing? I get around. Indeed. Yes, well, the question costs nothing. He raked his eyebrows. A barrier. I must examine this for myself. The big question is, who? Oh, my, indeed, yes, who, indeed? A good barrier takes much power, much skill. This is a good barrier? The way I hear it, yeah, real good. 
He stood and hobbled furiously around the room, rubbing one hand across his eyebrows and using the other for support. Political, it must be political, it must be connected with. You're the best magician in town, aren't you? Could you have done it? Me? He looked at me for a second, caught between ego and the needs of honesty. No, not I. Certainly not. Such a barrier requires too much power. Not my specialty, either. And myself, as the most powerful in Rusingovaya? At times, perhaps. Currently. Perhaps not. He stopped suddenly, staring out the milky surface of the river-beast bladder that covered the solarium dome. Such a barrier is employed by a sorcerer against other sorcerers. It is a sign that says, Beware. Enter this area at your own risk. Secret work in progress. To me, that sounds like more of an invitation for anybody who's curious to come take a look. You do not understand. This is a serious affair. Such a barrier is usually a preliminary when one expects an attack. Or a duel. It says, Bystanders, fall back or perish. I was starting to get the idea. If it isn't yours, whose is it? I know the local talent, and I'd say if you couldn't do it, none of them could either. It could be Runga, perhaps, but that is most unlikely. I must make inquiries, gather the adepts of the city. We will meet. Perhaps we may need to take joint action. This is a serious situation. I went to the door. Let me know. I'd better be there. Certainly. The door was large and brass and highly polished. I began to push it open and then said, What about strangers? Is there anybody new in town? In the reflection of his image in the door, I thought I saw him stiffen, just barely. If so, we must find this out, Carl said. I strode off down fresh breeze, turned a corner, and then took an alley quickly back through the center of the block. I was just in time to see Carl Lake, fully dressed now and leaning on a cane made from the large straight tusk of a moose slasher wolf, hobble out of the door of his home and set out for the north. The manservant had appeared right behind him. Locking the door, he hurried off in the opposite direction. I made a quick decision and slid after Carl. Carl stopped every minute or two to look around, but there were plenty of doorways and stalls for me to edge into out of his line of sight. For a guy with a permanent limp, he was acting remarkably agile. Given the usual crowds in the narrow streets, each person bustling back and forth with their purchases, haggling with the open-air merchants, and generally following their own errands and missions, so he couldn't actually see me each time he abruptly turned, it was all I could do to keep him in sight. I thought I'd lost him twice in the first ten minutes. Those times I had no excuse. Tailing was supposed to be part of my expertise. When I really did lose him, of course, there were other more urgent things going on. It wasn't more than fifteen minutes since Carl had left his house. We hadn't come that far, especially for the trouble I'd been having. I was following him north on Mosque Field, where it straightens out for a quarter mile and gets wide enough for two carts to pass at the same time. One of the guard outfits that had become ubiquitous after the coup, a squad of about ten guys, was working their way south toward us. Carl gave them a glance and then moved around to pass on the right. A solid stone wall, about twice my height, ran down that side of the block, several sharp-eyed beggars reclining in the gutter at its foot, and Carl was forced to edge right up to it, his shoulder on the rock and his tusk cane forcing the beggars to scuttle out of the way. 
I waited a few seconds and headed after him. The street and the gutter were surfaced with uneven flagstones, but the gutter was also covered on top of the stones by the standard sheath of trash and mud. Carl had moved the beggars back, at least, but I still needed to keep an eye on my footing and one on Carl at the same time. Just at the second, my footing was first in my mind. I always hate to slip in the goop. The approaching guard squad forced me up a bit closer to the wall. My foot hit a slick spot and began to slide, and so I raised my right hand to steady myself against the wall. I'm right-handed, and that's the hand I favor for my sword. I use a cross-body draw with the sword slung on my left hip. Just at that second, a trooper from the guard squad moved against the wall in front of me with his sword out and pointing in my direction. Simultaneously, another man had done the same thing right behind me, and still others had filled the space between the first two, all of their swords out as well, and the swords of their backups behind them. It had to be luck, and certainly not my own, that precisely when this happened my sword hand was splayed out on the surface of the tall rock wall, with the rest of me leaning against it several feet, and a shift of body weight away from actually getting my own sword free and available for use. Points poked my back, and another one poked my side. A hand reached in, pulled my sword out from my belt, and withdrew. By the time one of them said, You're under arrest, violation of curfew, contempt for martial law, it was almost anticlimactic. That was one of the slickest moves I've seen in a long time, I said. Shut up said the corporal. The whole thing had taken about six seconds. Up ahead, Carl Lake was still disappearing around the next corner. Just as he did, I thought I saw something impossible. I put it down to overwork. Unfortunately, the enforced vacation I now had coming up was not the sort that promised much chance of rest and relaxation. I was headed for the dungeons. Coming next, Chapter 7. Shaw converses.